Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to Career Conversations with Vumi Nusweli. And, you know, I always have got a special guest, but this lady really is special and she is phenomenal. She is Yola Datoba. She's the Vice President of Southern and Eastern Africa of the MTN Group. She's the former CEO of Vodafone Ghana. She literally was one of the youngest CEOs in the Johannesburg Stock Exchange history at the age of 29. The World Economic Forum has named her one of the young global leaders. She's been named by the Choiselle 100 Africa Institute, um, by Institute Choiselle France. And she's also the founder of one of my favorite organization, the Mentorship Boardroom. So ladies and gentlemen, Yolanda Tuba. <laughs> hello, 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 everybody. And hello, Bumi, and thanks for having me. And um, thanks for joining us, Yolanda. So Yolanda, I want everyone to get to know you, you know, the woman behind all the accolades. So we're gonna go into rapid fire intro questions, okay? Okay. So, I know you've just come back from one of these, so I'm gonna be interested to see what you choose. Beach or bush? Beach, 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 okay. beach. <laughs> She's literally back from, from holiday, so that's perfect. This is going to be a little controversial because you're in the ICT sector, but Android or Apple? I'm more Android-y, to be fair. Okay. I, I use both, though. <laughs> okay. Tea or coffee? Ah. <laughs> uh, coffee. Morning or Night. Night. Sedan or SUV? SUV. Kindle or good old-fashioned book? Book. Flats or heels? Heels. Wine or beer? Neither. <laughs> no, I had to disappear from screen for that one. <laughs> um, seven colors on a Sunday or a bride? Okay, repeat that. Seven colors on a Sunday or a bride? No, on a Sunday, seven colors. Okay. Dinner, dead or alive, you can invite anybody. Who is coming and what are you serving? Ooh, I would invite the Obamas because I think they are such fantastic, fantastic family. Um, I would invite Margaret Thatcher because I want to actually get to know that kind of woman behind what we see. I would invite Nelson Mandela because I like the, the, the leadership style. I would invite Bishop, Archbishop Tutu just to say, like, just to learn from someone who is like that, who actually em, embodies such humanity just by being, right? And then I would invite some cool youngsters as well that I sort of like and I come across once in a while you know and yeah so those are the people that i would invite and i'll definitely invite my daughter just to add that cheekiness and everything <laughs> and what would you serve what would i serve i think um starters would be something like a soup to be fair i'm a soup person and then um i'm also a casserole person so i would definitely have oxtail as part of uh, what would be served with mesh and asparagus or some other greens. And um, and dessert will be malva or tiramisu or something like that. Awesome. And I think with this weather, you're making me hungry. You're I know, right? Delicious. I'm even hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so you like that, you know, um, in getting to know you, I'm always surprised. So I'm interested to know, how would you define yourself? So if someone says, who is Belanda, what would you what would you say? I would say she is um, a uh, 
a, a, a people's person. Uh, she's someone who actually is out there, not afraid to go out and get what it is that she wants or whatever is actually being offered to her. She is not scared of opportunities and taking opportunities. Um, I would say she's bold and uh, she loves people. She loves inclusive development, whether it's financial inclusion, whether it's education inclusion or anything like that. Just leaving people behind, um, you know, whether it's digitally or not, for me, that's something that's difficult. So I do not want to leave anyone behind as we move forward in society. Okay. So your journey for me has been very interesting, right? So you found yourself in the space where you started out, you were a chartered accountant, and now you find yourself literally sort of venturing and pioneering in the ICT space where tech is so needed on the continent. Tell us a little bit about your journey. And I'm interested to know specifically what have been some of those highlights, those mountain peak moments where you're like, Vumi, this is, I couldn't believe this is my life. And what were some of those points where you're like, yo, Vumi, I can't believe this is my life. <laughs> so, so I guess, I mean, one of the benefits I had is that I started work early. When I say work, I mean formal work as well. Um, I started at 21. You know, I was in my first formal job at 21, graduated and everything. And I started in marketing. Right. And um, that was, I know a lot of people don't know. So, my first job was actually in marketing. I worked for Robertson Spices, and the like, helmet mayonnaise, and so on and so on. So, but after a, after a few months there, I realized this was not for me, you know. Um, and I actually did an, a conversion into accounting. I learned a lot of lessons in that first year of work. And we, we can touch on that later. But um, and then we moved on then to my second phase. My second phase was a difficult decision where I actually had to move from a job where I was getting paid as a normal person where you can afford a car, you can afford to stay alone. I actually moved to Durban at that stage. I lived in Durban, not, not at home in Cape Town and so on and so on. And then I had to make a difficult decision to say, I actually have to study part-time and then also move home, right? and I moved to Cape Town, then I didn't have um, uh, a car. I had to give up my car because I came from earning like 12, 13,000 rand to earning 2,900 a month. So you go back home, literally, you know, people know how difficult it is to go back home once you've yeah. left home for a couple of years. So yeah, so that was my first kind of big journey. And then that's why I'm saying I learned a lot of lessons uh, from that first year of work and the decision to go into, into articles. And after three years of articles, I then moved on to Bella Panda, where I actually entered that in, in corporate finance. And, and literally less than a year later, I was then actually uh, part of a long-term succession planning process. Uh, and they appointed me as a deputy CEO. And, and, and the deliberateness and the intentionality that Mbella Panda showed me is what most probably I still carry today. They said, we want to make you a deputy CEO. We know you're not ready today, but we're gonna make this a long-term thing, but our intention doesn't change, right? So you're not put into some funny kind of position, no study this one, this one in the back end, and then we'll make you a deputy CEO. And, and basically that helped them fast track my career. And then I moved to, after Mbella, 10 years almost at Mbella Panda, I then moved to SAB for three years. Again, that had a very specific reason why I joined SAB. When I joined SAB, I said, 
I actually want to um, pivot my career into what I call long-term sustainable corporate career. And I actually then went to SAB and I remember having a discussion with the CEO of uh, SAB at the time. And I said, no, I want to build um, repeatable models of success. And I see SAB as one of those companies. By the way, what most people don't know is that I actually went and I spoke to Putuma at exactly the same time at MTN, oh, wow. right? But he was just about to leave. So he said, let's wait until the new CEO comes and then have a discussion. But by that time, I had actually moved on with SAP. So, yeah, so for me, that's something that uh, that has helped me in my career. And then I moved on to Vodacom and then to MTN. Basically, I mean, just sort of moved around. I guess what was clear from day one in my career is that although I started in internal in, in audit, Right in external audit in my career as a as a as I was doing article clerk, I was an article clerk. I was very clear that this is not necessarily where my passion lies. The qualification is important; it opens many doors. But I would need to find my own niche within the space, and hence I chose uh, corporate uh, um, corporate finance, and then after moving to, from corporate finance, and then moving into general management. You seem to be very, very intentional. And, you know, that's the thing I talk a lot, a lot about in career coaching is intentionality. For you to think, Uti, you know, when you were getting ready, you were like, M10 is one of those, now this is where you find yourself. That speaks to that that intentionality. Um, so what I find fascinating about you, a lot of people don't know this, but you're a twin. Yes. And uh -huh. you and your sister are very successful, both in your own rights. And I'm always curious. I'm like, you. I would love to meet your mother. I want to know what she was instilling in you guys. Because that usually you find, it's, oh, this one's excelling and this one's not doing so well. To have both of you so successful speaks a lot to, you know, what she was instilling and, and frame of reference and that inspiration. So I want to know who has been your greatest inspiration and why? My greatest inspiration uh, has been mostly actually my family, to be fair. And when I was young, my grandmother actually had businesses that then went to my aunt. And as children, we actually had to work at the shop, mm -hmm. right? And at the butchery as well, and go into the streets and sell offal and all those kind of stuff. So that's where we started off from. So basically, um, and, and, and at that time, the, the whole matter was, if you want something, you have to work for it. So I was a dancer and I was told, if you if this if you want that you know those beautiful dance ballroom dancing dresses yes you actually have to you work for it. I mean at the time yes I do ballroom and Latin I didn't know that <laughs> no. yeah yeah I do, I do. Um, so yeah so I mean there was there were expensive dresses relative at that time and you had to work for it right so mm. the whole culture of working for it um, was instilled within within us very early on. And then from my mother, I, I think one of the things that both my sister and I actually got is we saw her when we were young, actually opening a law firm in Kempton Park in the early 80s, were really, really mm. small. And and you could see that the, the environment, right? You could see it's mm. very white, it's very this and da, da, da. But you didn't fully absorb it until you were like later on in primary school, late primary school, higher primary school, that actually this was bold, right? What this woman had done was bold and all this kind of stuff. And, and that actually, I think, gave us permission almost to actually go out there and just do whatever it is that we wanted, right? And then uh, from my ex-stepdad, right? 
this man valued education above everything else. I remember the one time, I mean, um, uh, we're sitting at home and, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but the word native had a negative yes. kind of derogatory word, right? Mm. It was a derogatory word for a long, yeah. long time, you know? Mm. So I, we, I walk in in the house and I'm like, uh, this person has actually said, I'm a native, and I'm going on and on and on. And my my stepfather asked, um, at the time, I mean, I was in Masrabi's summer five or something like that. And he said, what is the meaning of native? Right? Mm. And he said, go take the dictionary. And then I'm like looking for the dictionary. I can't find the dictionary. He got it in, oh, at that time, he actually was even traveling by bus as well. Mm. He actually got into the bus, went to Rondebosch, right? We stayed in Kailicha at the time mm. and bought us all dictionaries, all of us, including my mother. Oh, wow. And brought them home. And then he made me read what is the definition of native. And even today, I still remember the definition. And he said, and then he asked me, if someone says you are the one from or of that place or something like that, then what is wrong with that? What is wrong with that word? Aren't you a native of South Africa? And I'm like, yes, you know, and, and, and it taught me something. It taught me actually now to be conscious of, of what I hear and what I say. Right. Mm -hmm. And and his drive for education was unsurpassed. I mean, this guy, when my stepfather was with when we met him for the first time, he had just uh, done he was just finishing his honors. And then he said to us, he wants to be professor, doctor um, and his surname. Right. And this guy was nowhere. Right. And when I say nowhere, I mean, he was a lawyer, mm. normal lawyer in a normal kind of job kind of thing. Nothing nothing special, right? And he, he had this big ambition. And then he went out, he went, uh, he changed jobs, he went and lectured, he became a professor finally. And then he did his doctorate, he did postdoctoral studies. And as we sit here, he is a judge. Oh, wow. Right? Made it happen. You know, so, and, and so that sense of, actually saying what your ambition is and actually driving towards it and doing what is necessary and making the changes necessary, mm. being comfortable with short-term sacrifice in order to get what you want are some of the lessons that I learned mostly from my family. Sure. That's powerful. Um, I love that, that your stepdad was able to pour that into you. And I know we, we talk about this a lot, the importance of, you know, really having people who are able to pour, mentors, coaches. So I'm curious to know, do you have a personal career advisory board? And if so, what has been the best piece of advice? So I have uh, had lots of mentors and a lot of sponsors, right? And that's what I use. And, um, and you know, when I was doing, for example, the transition between... Um, Bella Panda, you were the younger CEO, the this, you were heading up an investment company, you're good with corporate finance. You had people, when I, when I said I was leaving, I had people actually offering me to, um, to put money behind me and to start an investment fund and do this and da da da. And I had to sit down and say, what is it that I wanted to do? Mm -hmm. Right. And 
and that's when I decided that actually I want to be more corporate and more uh, entrepreneurial because I knew inside of me that I was not entrepreneurial, right? Uh, however, that's people awesome. around that's you, a lot of people to admit. Look here, I mean, each to their own, right? You must be actually able to say this is not for me, right? And 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 especially when you have people around you saying, but you learn, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, you've done that. But I always tell people, but I was on a Bellapanda ticket. You know, mm. when I told people, they returned my call, right? Now, if I call the same person, right? I don't think they necessarily would return my call the same day. I mean, you know, mm. literally call pretty much anyone and they would return my call, right? So, so, so for me, you know, um, that was an important kind of mind, kind of go into self, actually understand who you are and what you want to be in the future. So it was an important moment where blocking out the noise and actually listening to self was an important part. But what was important during that time was actually having one of my mentors, who is uh, Simon Sussman, actually, and having a conversation with him and saying, uh, um, you know, what I don't know what I want to do, da da da. And then he said to me something absolutely fascinating, you know, because he was talking, we we're talking about my career and how it was like and all that. I was at the height at, in the in my early 30s and so on. And he said, Yolanda, you know, anyone can be a shooting star, but what's going to be sustainable? Mm. You know, Anyone can have one sort of success. Anyone, you know, one time, one and every day. Yeah, one hits one. Mm. You know, and he said, "What's going to make you sustainable?" And it was at that time when I went into myself and reflected, then, "What's going to make me long-term sustainable?" Right. And basically, as I went through that process, one of the things that I actually then came out out of me was that. Actually, I need repeatable models of success. And one of the things I remember saying to, to him, I said, you know, as I reflect uh, on my past, right, I worked with a lot of people who came from different industries to actually within Belapanda. And then I also had ex-political prisoners and so on, amazing leaders, having said that. But they were not um, operationally, or, or, or they didn't grow up in a corporate sense where you have kind mm -hmm. of structure ways of thinking and so on, right? So, and at some point I said, I said to Simon, I don't know if I'm, I did it or I winged it, right? And, 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 and uh, I remember in the conversation afterwards, actually reflecting on our conversation saying to myself, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. What, what matters is how do I educate myself and educate my intuition to make the right decision, you know? It, all of them were the right decisions at the end of the day. Mm. But, um, you know, you have to say, okay, what process did I follow in order to make that decision? So how do you, how did you go about that? That's And that's a very interesting mm. phrase you're using because you're saying, how do I educate myself from a mental perspective? And then also mm. how do I educate my intuition, which is, you know, almost that, that gut feeling, that, that stuff that isn't as tangible, that a lot of us can then accredit uh, can accredit our success too. Oh, yeah. So, I'll, I mean, one of the things then that I said is I needed to learn repeatable models of success, right? Mm -hmm. 
and and that's how I was going to educate my intuition. What what is the process by which you actually make these uh, decisions? What are the frameworks in the back of your head that you go through? And being quite deliberate uh, about it. You know, things mustn't always happen to you. You mustn't just be acting on stuff. You know, for me, it's important to actually say I am responding to this because responding to something actually has a lot of deliberateness and thought actually uh, behind it. So that's really what I wanted to to do. And as a leader, you know, I was already a CEO, remember? And um, at the time, I I I I said, you know. You never make uh, any big decisions with perfect information. Yeah? There's no decision you make. Like a big decisions, perfect information, no such thing, right? And, and, and so you actually had to find this thing inside of you that says, it feels right in my gut. Yeah? And, but in order to get there, you actually had to have gone through a process of learning, right? And I remember when, I, as I said, when I spoke to Tuma and I phoned, by the way, I called, called these people. I didn't know them from about so except from the newspapers. Um, really? And, and I said to him, I want to see you. This is where I am. Da, da, da. He made time for me. Norman made time for me. And strange enough, in, at SAP, they're saying, actually, Yolanda, we're looking for you already. Right? That's how the universe works, right? And then um, I said, you know, I want to go on a learning journey for the next two to three years. That was my that was my pitch. I want to go on a learning journey. You guys, these two companies that I've specifically identified, right, had grown from being at the south tip of Africa to actually being globally relevant and significant, right? SAB to the number two brewer in the world after AB InBev, and MTN was one in the top ten. Uh, MNOs mm. in the world, right? And and so when you think about that scale and that scale of success, right? You you actually are saying, how did these guys actually do it over and over and over and over and over again? So there's a system in the madness, right? Mm. It might look like there's no system. There's always a system that actually um, allows for that kind of replicability to actually happen. And I then um, ended up at SAB which I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, some of the ways of thinking that I have today actually emanate from SAB, right? SAB, before it was fashionable to be data-driven in terms of decision-making, they were data-driven organization, right? They were right up there. There were no decisions that were made without data actually backing it up, right? And number two, um, I had a CEO. The first one was Norman. Um, who actually was, um, he was a challenger CEO, right? By the time you get something through Norman, you must know that you know your story, right? Mm. And the likelihood of success was very high. Third thing is that SAB had codified a lot of ways of doing things. So at SAB, a little bit like Toyota, there is an SAB way of manufacturing an SAB way of marketing and da, da, da. And what that did, it actually ensured that you get 60 to 70% before you applied your own kind of thinking process. Mm. Your own thinking process gave you the delta or the, or okay. the alpha at the end, you know, the outcome. But in terms of actually getting the baseline and actually ensuring that you would be successful, 
the detail that went into planning actually helped with uh, with a lot of that. And you know, um, one of the things that Norman instilled in me, two things that he instilled in me, at least that I took from him, and I and I cherish even to this day. One is um, he used to talk about a Dupont, and a Dupont is basically understanding if there is a number, if there is a thing, what drives that to the lowest denominator of it. Sure. So if you actually say uh, something um, revenue of some of a line of a specific line or item actually is ten, right? What drives that? Quantity times price. Everyone knows that because that. And then he wants to actually know, okay, what drives quantity? What drives price? Mm. And then you go all the way down until Granny you detail. reach, for example, um, percentage of disposable income per 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 capita, mm. and the percentage of that. That's what actually ultimately ultimately actually decides that. But it's very far away from price, mm. right? And then quantity. What determines that, right? And how do you actually go to the lowest denominator around that? And then, by the way, it's not just quantity, right? People always say it's quantity times price. Actually, no, it's also availability. If it's not there, the pricing is zero, um, the mm. revenue is zero, right? Mm. So what drives availability? It's the trucks, is it this, is it this, is it this, and so on. So he made me start thinking about even my income statement, how I read an income statement today. You know, although I was always a CA, right? You know, mm. I understand the numbers, but I never before that actually consciously thought about what is the story behind the numbers, right? Yeah. What decisions, because what he instilled in me is that everything you see in an income statement, balance sheet, any set of accounts, right, is a decision. That's all it is. It's a decision. Mm. So if your gross profit, for example, your gross profit margin is very low, it's 10%, right? Let's say, what are the wrong decisions you made? You decided to source from a different currency from the one you're selling from. You decided to be in the middle of a, uh, let's say, of Santon instead of being downtown Johannesburg. You've decided, these are all decisions. Mm. And so the ramifications of things Above the line, it's gone, right? So, yeah. So those are the kind of things. So at Norman, I, I learned a lot of that from me. And the second thing is the veracity of your decision. With Norman, he never told you this, but if you actually saw how he operated, you would understand this. Norman never accepted you when you said uh, any kind of recommendation, when you say, uh, when you go to him and say, this is my recommendation, you present and you say, this is my recommendation, right? He will ask you, what other options did you consider, right? So he's challenging the thinking in why, why are you making this decision? Why are you getting to this decision? Because a lot of times we are channeled into the decision that we want without actually thinking broadly, why are we making this decision and why other alternatives are not, um, are not relevant? And when you do that, right, it's a little bit like scenario planning. People who scenario plan tend to be able to deal better with any adversity then that comes within the situation because they've considered different permutations. And a lot of times people will come and present to you without actually telling you 
what other alternatives are there and they and you can see that they have not considered any other alternatives right and and for me that's the thing is that there is not one necessarily one solution to get to um to the right outcome however there could be multiple but the reason why i'm choosing this one and being clear on that one actually increases the chances of success I like that he's I like how he pushes his people and himself to expansive thinking because that's a very different way of thinking about because often when you're thinking at that c-suite level it's like just give me the highlights and let me make decisions never going into such granular detail and expansive ways of thinking and talking about expanding our thinking uh yeah I'm excited for this question Yolanda what are your top five best reads and why Okay, my first one would be, um, you know, say it right the first time, right? It was a book that was uh, instrumental when I became deputy CEO for the very first time. I was super, super young. I was like 26 or something. And um, I realized that in order to be able to, to, to actually uh, be effective, I needed to learn how to communicate. And, and that book helped me to learn how to communicate. It's a small book. I don't know if it's here, but it normally is around me somewhere because I do dish it out quite liberally, you know. Uh, the second book uh, I would say is Convince Them in, in I think it's 90 seconds. Also, it's never too far for me. 90 seconds. Okay, I can find that one. Strange enough, it's right here, you know. <laughs> Convince them in 90 seconds. Okay, by yeah. Nicholas. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and it's really around influence and basically understanding who you are when you walk into a room. And, and one of the examples it makes, for example, is say, walk into a room, right, feeling like a hippo. Mm -hmm. And walk into, into, into the office feeling like a hippo that day, right? How does it feel like, right? And then the next day it says, walk into the room, into, into your office feeling like a kangaroo. Oh. <laughs> can you see? Can you feel, can you feel the difference? It's so okay. different. There's one, you're like, it's heavy. I'm taking up space. You know, lethargic. The other's like yes. high energy no. bouncing. And that is in that book. It's in the Convince Them. And it's a practical book around understanding your own presence, understanding how you can actually uh, influence people verbally and non-verbally and so on. The third book that I would say is, um, is a book called Mobile MBA. Mobile MBA was a sort of offbeat. So when I when I fly, I normally just buy a book and I'll read it. And um, it was one of those. And one of the things that I learned from that book, and and I happened to read it at the same time as I was at SAD, I think it was. And um, one of the chapters there actually talks about this notion that I was talking about around actually understanding that um, uh, was this, uh, um, your income statement is an outcome of your decisions. And I love that because it was then core to who I became as a leader, right? Um, understanding numbers, understanding the meaning, asking the right questions uh, and so on. So for me, that was uh, that's, that's another book, great book. Um, I'm trying to think of non-kind of political books that I would say. Um, Atomic uh, Habits and yeah. um, and the 1% Rule, read yeah. those together, you know, and and I would say that's one of the great reads. Um, 
it just is great to see um, and understand that, um, you know, habits are more important than goals, right? And I never actually really internalized that before, right? Goals are finite, habits are not, right? And, and, and basically it helps redefine how you think about success. So if I wanna lose weight, like I wanna do now after the holidays, you know, um, um, you know, you have no idea what I was eating. <laughs> and, I think and, I'm just close to the Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I said, I said, um, you would normally say I want to lose five kilograms, for example. That's a goal, right? I want to get to X number of kilograms, right? And and what uh, atomic uh, habits actually did for me was to say, actually, why don't you redefine that as I want to be, I want a healthy lifestyle because then when you want a healthy lifestyle right now it's a system of life of being in a healthy lifestyle that you want rather than just a once off that once i reach that five then i'm done mm. and then what happens you gain it again yeah you do you know you so actually, yes. and that's what it talks about it talks about a system of actually um getting to the outcomes you want rather than actually focusing on the goal itself, right? What are you going to change in terms of outcomes? And the 1% rule is a nice book just to actually get some real insights around, you know, what can I do today? I mean, I remember uh, there was a time when I didn't want to do any exercise and whatever, and I just promised myself I'll just do two minutes, right? And you wait until your body actually internalizes, because two minutes is nothing. Right? Yeah. If I tell you, read a book for two minutes, even if I tell my kid read a book for two minutes, they don't mind. Two minutes is yeah. short. You know, so it's non, it's non, uh, it's non-committal, right? It's it's very much like you can do it anytime and so on. So you actually, it's easy to do. And how do you get these kind of easy to do moments in the things that you find hard and things that you procrastinate on? Remember, we procrastinate on things that we are not sure about or things that we cannot do. Okay. Things that we do, we generally don't procrastinate. No, we can do it now. Yeah. You do now and you get it over and done. So that's another book. And then the, I guess the last uh, book, am I number five now? I don't even yeah, number, know. you said Atomic and 1% is one book. Sense so one book. One book. Yeah, it, it literally is. Um, and then now I have to choose. Mm. I'm so torn now. Um, I like a book called The One Thing, right? But you only have to read the forward and the first chapter, and then you've read the whole book. Okay. You know, so you know it's a nice concept. It's looking for that one thing that, if you did, will not necessitate another five or ten steps that you would would be required to actually take, right? Mm -hmm. So. Practical example, let's say, uh, if you wanted what uh, someone to wash your car, look after your car, da, 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 whatever, take you from place to place, and all those kind of stuff, you know, and you're worried about your car as well and the cost of your car, then what is the solution that you could have that actually takes away all those 10 different kind of anxiety points? And you can say, actually, I can get an Uber. Oh, wow. And it annihilates it's all the, the one. So it eliminates all the issues that you had, right? 
So what is the one thing that ne does not necessitate you doing everything else? The one thing you can do that does not necessitate. And, and that goes very much around the 80-20 principle, mm. which is a book that I read in my first year of work. And it was amazing to have read that book in my first year of work, the 80-20 mm. principle. Yeah. And then the last one was The Gift. That's where I was torn, you know, mm. because The Gift is really a beautiful book around adversity and actually not allowing adversity to actually dictate who you are. Yeah. Yolanda, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to complete the sentence. I mm. am a master at? At interior decorating. Wow. Okay. 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 I'll see you. We see you. Um, what I know for sure is is that I am loved by my children and my family. <laughs> my life's work is. Ooh, my life's work is inspiring others, and 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 definitely making sure that the world is better than what I found. Knowing what I know now, I. Hmm. Knowing what I know now, I would be an architect. Really? Okay, that's so surprising. Okay. <laughs> wow, Esther's taking me back. Okay. <laughs> Last and not least, I am. I am a unique, blessed and Africa-loving child of the soil. And, you know, my vision in life is to, is to really make Africa shine bright. You're well on your own doing that. You're doing that already. Thank you so much, Yolanda. I appreciate you making the time. Only a pleasure, and thanks for having me. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Yolanda Fub as much as I did. And make sure to tune in to our very next Career Conversations with Vumim Sueli. Stay safe, everybody.